Now a reading from the Gospel according to Mark. I'll be reading from the seventh chapter. I'll begin at verse 1 and read through verse 8, jump to 14 and 15, and then down to 21 through 23. This from the Common English Bible. The Pharisees and some legal experts from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. They saw some of his disciples eating food with unclean hands. They were eating without first ritually purifying their hands through washing. The Pharisees and all the Jews don't eat without first washing carefully. This is a way of observing the rules handed down by the elders. Upon returning from the marketplace, they don't eat without first immersing themselves. They observe many other rules that have been handed down, such as the washing of cups and jugs and pans and sleeping mats. So the Pharisees and legal experts ask Jesus, Why are your disciples not living according to the rules handed down by the elders, but instead eat food with ritually unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah really knew what he was talking about when he prophesied about you hypocrites. He wrote, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. Their worship of me is empty since they teach instructions that are human words. You ignore God's commandment while holding down onto the, holding onto the rules created by humans and hand it down to you. Verse 14. Then Jesus called the crowd again and said, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Nothing outside of a person can enter and contaminate a person in God's sight. Rather, the things that come out of a person contaminate the person. Verse 21, it's from the inside, from the human heart, that evil thoughts come. Sins, thefts, murders, adultery, greed, evil actions, deceit, unrestrained immorality, envy, insults, arrogance, and foolishness, all these evil things come from the inside and contaminate a person in God's sight. Here is the reading. May God grant us wisdom and courage for its interpretation. The Reverend Reggie Weaver, a black Presbyterian minister, captured my undivided attention when I heard him tell about going to visit in his childhood at his Aunt Britty and Uncle Hubbard's house for family meals. He recalls a rather lengthy but meaningful account of the experience that many of us need to hear. So I'm delighted to share it with you. He said, now when it comes to meals, no one in my family was a real stickler for table manners. We don't really care on which side of the plate the fork is supposed to lay. If you want the peas, you don't really need to wait for someone to pass the peas. Just get up and grab the peas. Reach across the table if you have to. But Aunt Britty would, and still does, get irritated if someone showed at the, up at the table with dirty hands. If it happened to be me, she'd kind of nudge me behind the shoulder and say, boy, go wash your hands. And being a little child, I might run back to the bathroom, turn the water on without actually washing them, in case anyone was listening, and try to come back to the table. But Aunt Britty had a way of knowing when that happened, and so she would just say it again, boy, I thought I told you to go wash your hands. 
Now, if you made Aunt Britty repeat herself like that, you had a feeling that if you didn't do what she said that time, then it was all over for you. You were not going to eat that day, and you might not live to eat again, you began to wonder. So you ran back and washed those hands. Now, we all know that there are good reasons for keeping our hands clean, he said, with all the germs and diseases out there. And I'm sure that Aunt Britty was concerned about all of that. But it always seemed to me that there was something more than just hygiene behind her passionate insistence. I never knew what that was as a child, but whatever it was, it showed itself in these expressions she would make while we were eating. Sometimes I would look at Aunt Britty down at the other end of the table and I could see this deep contentment that would come over her face as if nothing in the world was going to keep her from enjoying this meal. Every now and then, she would pause and look around the table at the family, and she would kind of lean back in her chair with this great big smile, looking so proud, and I would sit there and wonder, what's she over there smiling about? I mean, the food was good, but not that good. I just couldn't understand. Reverend Weaver continued, Then as I grew up, I started to hear some stories. They told me what things were like for them growing up. My father, Aunt Britty, and their brothers and sisters lived through a time when Jim Crow and segregation ruled the South. My grandparents were sharecroppers, and in that system about the only way to make any money was to have children. The children would work and help the parents pay off the debt they owed to the landowner, and to that end, my grandparents had 15 children. Well, that meant that once they made a payment toward the debt, they had to try to feed 15 children with what was left. And quite often, there wasn't enough left, and so they would have to decide whether or not to borrow even more from the landowner in order to keep all of the children fed. If they did that, then they would drive the family even further into debt. So many times, instead of doing that, the family simply did not have enough to eat. Moreover, my grandparents had to try to keep the family healthy at a time when black folks didn't have access to health care almost at all. In fact, some of the kids did die because of that. When it came to minor illnesses or even broken, a broken bone, they had to treat it with their own remedy. And when I hear some of the remedies they came up with, I'm amazed that they survived those, <laughs> let alone the illnesses. They had to do these things in order to survive when every day there were people out there trying to keep them in their place, doing everything in their power to demoralize them by threats and sometimes by actual violence. So when I hear those stories, it all makes better sense to me now. In Aunt Britty's eyes, every time we get together as a family, every time we have a meal, that moment is a true gift. That moment is sacred. That moment is almost impossible, and yet here it is. She must feel like Moses, it must have felt, when he saw the bush burning up without burning up and heard the voice say, take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. Well, when the family eats together, we're on holy ground.
Reverend Weaver concluded, and that thing she has about washing our hands, that's the ritual she came up with to honor the moment each time. Hmm. Let's shift gears and go back to our biblical text now. In our Bible story, the Pharisees are so hard to love, but I think that if we give them the benefit of the doubt, something like this ritual of, of Reverend Weaver's Aunt Britty, which was going on with them, we might have more compassion for the Pharisees. The Gospel author in Mark says that when they gathered around Jesus, they noticed some of his disciples were eating with unwashed hands. It goes on to say that the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, and it points out some other rituals of cleanliness. Again, all of those are good things to do, not only for hygiene, and I, I bet you'll agree that COVID-19 and this whole pandemic has re-emphasized in most of our minds the incredible importance of simple things like washing our hands. But for the Pharisees, for the scribes, these rituals meant much more than a simple act. They, too, had heard some stories. They, they knew, you see, how their ancestors had been enslaved in Egypt. They knew how God had brought them out. They knew that while they were in the wilderness, God had given them the law that would help them to keep their freedom. Those laws were meant to keep them united as a community. So it was important for them to keep the law in order to maintain their unity and their freedom and as a sign of their devotion, not only to one another, but to God. But obeying the laws, it was complicated. In many cases, these laws gave very clear instructions on the way certain situations should be handled when they arose. And yet in other cases, the law simply provided a moral principle that was open to interpretation. So an individual or a group of people would have to decide how to apply it in community together. And over time, there came a group of legal scholars called scribes who saw that as long as there was this fluidity with the interpretation of these laws, then the door was open for all the laws to be broken. And so they developed thousands of other rules as a kind of fence around the original laws in order to even keep people from approaching breaking them. And these rules were not written down. You see, they became a part of an oral tradition, which this passage we read calls the tradition of the elders, which was passed down from generation to generation until hopefully it sunk in and became common practice. And one of the rules in this oral tradition had to do with, you guessed it, the washing of hands. In the written law, there were many guidelines for what Jewish people could, could and could not eat, outlining which foods were clean or unclean. If a person was, were to eat a food considered unclean, then that person became unclean, and then that person was unfit to serve God or to enter into the temple or to enter, for that matter, into the presence of other people. Well, the tradition of the elders said that even if the food itself was clean, by eating with unwashed hands, that food became unclean. So to avoid that, the tradition prescribed this ritual of washing your hands before you eat. 
So when they saw that the disciples were eating with unwashed hands, they got a little concerned and they asked Jesus about it. Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? When you think of it that way. They said, why do your disciples not live according to their tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled or unclean hands? They didn't just question the particular practice there. They challenged the disciples' way of life, if you, look at the, if you look at this in context. And they did it not on the basis of the law. They were concerned about preserving their own fence, even, around the law. Why don't y'all do things the way we do it? In other words, hmm. And his preaching book, The Homiletical Plot, Dr. Eugene Lowry describes what was, at the time he wrote this book, a new approach to preaching sermons he hoped would catch on. It did, by the way. He gave a certain caution in the introduction in which he says that when a congregation is accustomed to a certain style of preaching, a change of form is often perceived as a change of content or theology. Now think about that. Well, Jesus and his disciples were changing the form. They were doing all those things their tradition told them not to do, touching and healing the sick, freeing people from demons, hanging out with the Gentiles. All these people were considered unclean. He and his disciples lived their lives on the unclean side of the fence, down in the dirt, so to speak, where the hurting people, the outcasts of society, lived he was changing the form. There's a difference, by the way, between the form and the substance. So Jesus didn't deny what his disciples did. He didn't even justify what they were doing explicitly. Instead, he reached way back through the tradition, all the way back to the prophet of Isaiah, going old school on him. And he said, this people, he quoted Isaiah saying, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrine. He goes on to say, you abandon the commandment of God and hold on to human tradition. In other words, you intended your tradition to be a fence around the law, but you've built such a high fence that you can no longer see what it is you're trying to protect. You no longer understand the commandment of God. And all those little rituals you perform in the name of God, they mean nothing because, well, your heart ain't right. The Pharisees and the scribes focused so much on the means, the form, the methods with which to protect the law that they failed to be transformed by its substance, its deeper meaning. We still do that. We lift up a form or we lift up a method, or we lift up an expression of the way people get at a deeper truth, and we point to it until we forget the deeper, more important, underlying truth. For example, the ultimate reason for wearing a mask when indoors during this global pandemic 
has never actually been done in order to debate personal freedoms. Though many with a particular partisan political agenda seem to have managed to reframe the argument as an argument about personal freedoms so radically that the main point in our national debate has changed, at least for them. It's much the same for many when it comes to taking the COVID-19 vaccine or when it comes to quarantining for several days after a person realizes that they may have been exposed to someone who was infected with COVID-19. You see, when you focus only on the symbolic and not the deeper meaning, when you focus on the peripheral things at the edges of the important part of a conversation, but not the heart, the things that are form and not substance, like the masks and the vaccines themselves, it can be really easy for some to forget the original intent of things like masks and vaccines. To save and preserve human life. And how do we do this? How do we protect and preserve human life? Well, by minimizing new infections, which minimize hospitalizations, which minimize the number of deaths, not only for those who get COVID-19, but also those who may need our medical facilities because they experience a different illness or injury. And Unfortunately, as Hurricane Ida bears down on the Gulf Coast of Louisiana today, where flooding and destruction are very likely to happen, there are no intensive care unit beds available in the entire state of Louisiana before the hurricane even arrives. I wonder if this would be the case if the debates had not shifted to center on personal freedom but instead had remained focused on human life itself. I wonder. Now, most of us, I think, here in our congregation are, are pretty good, I think, when it comes to staying focused on preserving human life, especially in regards to COVID-19. But I wonder in the heat of the moment, sometimes in our families, or maybe among our friends or other circles within the community or the world, if there are other parts of our own lives that we've only seen part of the reason for coming to the proverbial dinner table with clean hands. I wonder, do we shift the debate in different ways by focusing on the ritual or the symptoms in other parts of our lives but miss the main point? Only you can answer that question for yourself. Our answers will vary because our experiences and our perspectives will vary. But at the end of the day, if loving our neighbor is dependent on anything besides the fact that they are alive and that they, like us, are a human being equal in God's eyes of sacred worth, then we need to reexamine our approach. So the question that goes with my sermon title are cleanliness and godliness really neighbors? <laughs> I suppose the answer lies in why we want things clean. Amen.